reached double digits. Today is day 10 of Crimes, Crews and Christmas from Comedy Whodunits for your ears. Welcome back. I'm Ferg, she's Heather. I am. And we are new old friends. <laughs> it's that part of the story where the police get involved. Now, Ferg, I think I've spotted something about the police in the crimes world. Oh, you have, have you? Yes, there's an Inspector Colgate, an Inspector Acrofresh, and now an Inspector Oral B. Mm, what about it? They all have the same first name. Inspector. Oh, you're a fool. <laughs> also, I'm pretty sure we pronounce it Oralby rather than Oralby, but it's fine. Oh, sorry. Uh, anyway, sorry. quiz question? Okay, hashtag Noff quiz question coming up. Hashtag Noff quiz question. Who is the voice of Arthur Christmas? I love, 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 love that film. I like it too. Maybe we'll watch it after that, enjoying the next chapter of Crimes, Clues and Christmas. Ding, ding. Clues and Christmas, Chapter 10. Inspector O'Rowby wasted no time in beginning his investigation. Meanwhile, I was continuing mine. He set about ascertaining the facts of Daisy Love's death in a blink of an eye. With him, to secure a room and a procession of interviews was but the work of a moment. It's with a dash of chagrin, I must report, the main players comported themselves far more pliantly in his Irish presence than they had done in my previous interrogations. But then, I must remember that he was greatly aided by the fact a woman had died. Nothing cuts out unnecessary sass like someone shuffling off their mortal coil before that coil has really had a chance to unspool itself to its proper length. Indeed, the interviews didn't begin until a team of hospital orderlies had arrived and carried out poor Ms. Love's lifeless corpse. That's not a tautology, by the way. I read a terrifying Penny Dreadful in which a horde of corpses had far too much life in them by half. Whatever the reason for their obedience, O'Rowby was able to marshal the disparate viewpoints into a coherent narrative devoid of opinion and, by assiduous use of cross-reference, beyond question in its veracity. He did all this in just under 45 minutes from arrival. I'll give him that. The man's efficient. He quickly compiled this report. Miss Love, victim was stood on stage with sundry others including, but not limited to, Mr Lightfoot, Mr Barrington and Ms McConstance. A sandbag, of the standard type used for counterweight when lifting scenery, fell from a height striking Ms Love upon the head, killing her instantly. Witnesses, including the three aforementioned members plus Eldridge Rawlins and Dorothy Clitheroe, all reported not seeing anyone in the gantry, the raised platform above the stage, at the time of the incident. No obvious reason to suspect foul play. End report. Now, I'm not going to quibble with the accuracy of his account. After all, I wasn't there. But I do take issue with his final conclusion. And I I certainly felt it rather lacked something in poetry. I've taken steps to address this with my own retelling of the last few moments of Ms. Love. My first attempt led me to the form of a limerick. There was a young woman named Love, who danced dressed in feathers of dove. She jetted and tendered, she did all that the men dood, but sadly was crushed from above. However, I can't help but feel that the structure of a limerick lacks the requisite heft for a poem that will serve as both eulogy and epitaph. So, allow me to present the epic ballad of Daisy Love by Peter Archridge Esquire, art investigator, raconteur, hero, poet? Yes, poet. The epic ballad of Daisy Love. Her story started, as stories often do, 
when a priest asked a question and a bride said, I do. The wedding was small as befitting their station, pies, pasties and pastries, and punch for libation. The guests danced with gusto in all manner of steps. The boys clapped and they cheered for the girls' pirouettes. The revels were long, the celebrations most hearty, but eventually night fell and so ended the party. As the hall emptied out, the bride looked at her groom. I suppose now's the time we head to our room. From 2,000 yards, you could see the chap's grin. He'd enjoyed the tales of what was in store for him. I won't sully the moment by detailing the deed, but in nine short months' time, the two became three. Oh, darling, isn't she perfect? Cooed mother and wife. The most incredible thing I've ever seen in my life. Now our goals transform to straightforward ones. We do all that we can to help her become whatever she wants, hopes or desires. I'll provide fuel for her dreams, and you'll stoke the fire. The husband heard well what his young wife had said, so he toiled all hours and she sewed till she bled. But they did it with glee, with hearts filled with joy, if their work could but buy their sweet girl a new toy. Time passed to the past, as is its past time. Little Daisy grew up, but her features stayed fine. She was always so delicate, so slender and slight, one could almost believe her capable of flight. Flight may be a skill that proved just elusive, but perhaps the conditions just weren't that conducive. For when ballet was discovered at the age of just seven, her leaps propelled her high into the heavens. It was clear to all in her rural location that here was a girl who had found her vocation. She loved dancing at home and at village fate balls, but in her dreams she was dancing in grand concert halls. Not before long Daisy, a young woman so pretty, bade farewell to her village and left for the city. She maintained her modesty, though her ambitions were big. She was thrilled to secure her first chorus gig. I'll learn every step, I'll master all the moves. With dedication and my work, roles will improve. But life in the chorus isn't a joke. They endure every entendre from lecherous blokes. Daisy stayed quiet with a purposeful frown. She worked at her craft and kept her head down. She did whatever they asked, practiced her arabesque. She wore costumes with veils to look arabesque. Her career progressed slowly, if it progressed at all. Too short for this role, for that one too tall. But then, out of the blue, like a laughing hyena, the director selects her to replace Marlena. You, girl, yes, you, stretching at the bar. You're my new prima, dear. I shall make you a star. Which is what happened. That's how it's transpired. Daisy was hired, Marlena was fired. Of course, there was gossip. Tongues can but wag. I don't care a jot. The roll's in the bag. But our darling Daisy wasn't quite the type to boast. She celebrated her break with baked beans on toast. She wrote to her parents in a tear-strewn letter. Mama and Papa, things couldn't be better. I've been plucked from the line to take on the lead. My pay stays the same, but the role is all I need. Let this be a warning, a shot across the bow. Fragile dispositions should stop reading now. For what follows this stanza, what shadows this verse, is death dark and cold, we mortals unbreakable curse. Right. Have we lost all the soft hearts, only hardy types left? Don't blame me if the next section leaves you bereft. I'll brook no argument, tolerate no looking askance. I've been quite clear what's coming, you all had your chance. 
Daisy Love, our heroine, was told to stand still on stage. My hand trembled slightly to set it down on the page. She kept perfect posture, her feet locked in first, not knowing these moments were the last of hers. There was no warning, not a soul heard a sound, till Sandbag and Daisy both crashed to the ground. Cries went up, screams rent the air, eyes lifted to the rafters, but no one was there. What could have caused it? Who unloosed the rope? A check of her pulse, but there was no hope. Her neck was contorted, her eyes gaping wide. There was no doubt that Daisy had died. Just at this moment, this apex of woe, stepped into the scene a handsome hero. How fine and how dashing this newcomer is. Into the phrase leapt Peter Archridge. A man so wise, so striking, so fine, he'll solve this mystery in next to no time. The question arises, has there been foul play? Prudent Peter Artridge thinks it's too early to say. I admit, I, I might need to tidy up the ending there, especially if it turns out that this was just a tragic accident. But I ask you, which of the two versions is more compelling, eh? I think the police would enjoy far more success in front of the beak if, rather than their dreary reports, they relayed the facts of the case with a bit of vim and elan, don't you? I imagine it can be a pretty rum lot for a judge sat up there listening to the same tired old prose trotted out time and time again. We apprehended so-and-so under the suspicion of such-and-such and ascertained whatever it was before proceeding to wherever. I mean, even a little haiku could brighten up a routine breaking and entering trial, couldn't it? The suspect did it. The neighbour saw him do it. Case closed, your honour. I certainly think so. But O'Rowby disagreed and warned me. Mr Artridge, if you continue with these lyrical digressions, I'm afraid I won't allow you to shadow me on the remainder of the investigation. Which, to be honest, I don't see much reason to extend any further in any case. Shadow him? Shadow him? Well, I'd laid all the facts I'd learned before him. Daisy's suspected thievery, the rivalry between her and Marlena, Rudy's mystery person who was bleeding him dry, and, with great dignity, suggested he might want to rethink his threat. Please, 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 let me stick around, Inspector. Please, I'll be good, I promise. He acquiesced, and I'm sure he's pleased he did, given my involvement in what followed. Crime Screws and Christmas is a New Old Friends production, part of the Comedy Who Done It's For Your Ears podcast series. Written and performed by Fergus Woodsnollop and Heather Westwell with sound and music by Fred Riding. New Old Friends gratefully acknowledge the support of Arts Council England in making Comedy Who Done It's For Your Ears. Mm-hmm.